Hey everyone, Mitchell here. Before we start the show, a huge thank you to the Walton Family Foundation. Thanks for the continued support this season. We are here with the godfather of soil health, the Obi-Wan Kenobi of soil health, as you've been called, Dave Brandt. Yes. And if you're a listener of the Fieldwork Podcast and you don't know who Dave Brandt is, I mean, I'm just disappointed, but you're going to find out who Dave Brandt is here today. And that's my first question, Dave. Who the heck are you? Where, where are we at here today? And appreciate you letting us come out. We're doing this from within the, the cleaning barn here today. So we got amazing acoustics. It's going to sound great. But Dave, thanks for having us. Explain who you are and where we're at. Well, I'm Dave Brandt from Fairfield County, Ohio. Have been no-tilling and working with cover crops since uh, 1971 and still doing it. Uh, learning every year different things and having lots of fun. My goal was to show people throughout the United States how they could uh, be, uh, I hate to call it sustainable, but to be to make more money and not spend so much to get a crop produced and uh, have uh, enjoyed all the new people I've met over the years and uh, been called everything from uh, that Mitch said, and even worse than that in some yeah, cases, that you know, but uh have really enjoyed it, and I guess the fun thing for me, since I'm almost uh, 79 years old, that uh, now I'm seeing my children, what I call them, and my grandchildren talking about uh, regenerative ag. And I mean, you know, those are guys like uh, uh, Rick Clark and Archuleta and uh, uh, Gabe Brown and all those guys have all been here. Yeah. And I just figure them, I call them my children, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's great. I must be like a great grandchild or something <laughs> like that. I haven't been at it quite as long as you have, but trying to continue to, you know, really take the torch that you and your peers really started, you know, so yeah. long ago. And I think it's amazing to see where this has progressed. But let's start at the beginning with what, w- what was the initial starting point? What was the kickoff? Why was 1971 the day that you're like, all right, we're going to do it? We'd re- we'd uh, went to a tenant farm that had uh, Charlotte cattle, uh, about 40 head and about 70 sows, and I was uh, the tenant on the farm, uh, and started there in '69. Had a crop advisor there, and he said, David, he says, I think the only way you can make this work, and I just got out of the military as a Marine, uh, had just lost my dad in a farming operation, which had to be sold, so I had to start over from scratch the third time, and. Uh, he says, the only way you can do this is no-till, you know? And I said, well, what's that? And he says, well, Alice Chalmers has just come out of this planter. And he says, uh, I know the Jamal Chalmers person. He says, well, just go get you one. I said, okay. And so I started with a four-row Alice Chalmers planter, a 30-20 John Deere new, yeah. you know, and I still have it on the farm. It's awesome. And a Walsh sprayer, 300-gallon sprayer, and a John Deere 45 combine without a cab. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and we began, and... Uh, did it for a couple, did one field in 69, in 71, I said, we just can't, I can't afford to plow because we, we was pushing almost 200 sows at that time and 200 Charlie cattle. And we changed our calving operation because uh, I learned we couldn't plant corn on April 1st like everybody else did. So I changed my calving to start in May the 1st and run through the 20th. So there was no way I was going to plant any corn. You know, and then after we planted corn, we got successful because it was warm and better conditions, you know, and that's how we began to learn. Uh, for a few years, we did really well. Yields went up, and then all of a sudden, you know, no-till kicked me in the butt, 74, 75, and 
we said, what are we going to do? And he said, well, we got to try some cover crop. So winter pea was our first one. And then we worked with Harry Batch. And of course, in the early 70s, they had the set-aside program where you could set aside your poorest acres and get paid from the government. So yeah, we was in the government program. So what we did, we set a field aside every year and we moved it. And we was able to put sweet clover in those fields and be there for two years. And man, did we see the changes in the production of our corn by doing that. And that's how we learned to do that. There's a little something to it. You yes, weren't, sir. You weren't quite watching it on YouTube at that point of of uh, these guys doing cover crops no. and stuff. It wasn't quite from YouTube. Yeah. Who? Where was your buddy from? The guy that, that told you about this? He was a government employee and he worked for in the Eisenhower administration in the ag department. That's awesome. And he was just a real good advisor. He was an old fella out of Marysville that was a farmer that struggled like we were. And he was just wanting to help us. And it, made, it really made it nice, you know. As we got involved, you know, we were the only ones doing it in the area. So then Chevron Chemical come up with Gramoxone and Repairquad at that time. So we were one of their five people in Ohio that did all their test work. And they paid us uh, what I thought was a lot of money at that time. It was like 2000 bucks, you know. And I thought that was like a gold mine to me then. And so the criteria was you had to have a field day once a year. And you had to bring invite equipment companies in. So, you know, my policy was that we do the field day. Everybody shows up a day before like they are here. And they bring all their equipment with the tractor. And they had to leave at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So that gave David from 4 o'clock in the afternoon till 8 o'clock the next morning to find out how these new tractors and these drills worked, you know. Sure. And if they plugged up with corn fodder, that's exactly where they sat. Wow. You know. You were... These guys brought their equipment. And is this the farm that you started on where we're standing yes. at today for yes. context? Yes. So, and we're just southeast of Columbus for everyone listening. What, maybe 45 minutes southeast yes. of right. Columbus. So, so you had them all bring their equipment here. Yes. And you said, leave the keys in it. Yep. And it'll be maybe just fine when you get back tomorrow. Yeah, right. And I said, you know, if it don't work, you'll know why, you know. And of course, you know, at that time it was, uh, you know, we had conventional drills so they'd put 55 gallon drums on the front fill them full of water put fluted coders on the front of them you know and all oh, they'd work you know but uh you know but you get in that 160 bushel corn fodder they'd plug up you know and i've seen i've seen corn fodder clear over the seed boxes you know <laughs> and these guys had come in the morning where's my drill david i says it's sitting out there it's buried you know so what <laughs> you're getting at is that there was all this residue and stuff you guys were trying to no-till and these companies were trying to figure out how to build no-till drills, drills no-till right. planters yes. and uh and yeah so you got to play around well, with all i that. got to play around with stuff you know it, it was a lot of fun of course i ticked off a lot of dealers sure but you know they found out what the problems was and that's why we have the tools that we have today well and forced them to innovate and that if it wasn't going to work for you it wasn't going to work for that other guy right. and you might as well tell them what's wrong first right. before one of their customers has a big issue that's correct and uh so so but uh, when did you get rid of like the livestock and stuff obviously now you've diversified into lots of other things yeah. we'll get into that but the progression here was at some point you got rid of the charlets got rid of the sows right well you know, in the, in the late uh, 90s, uh, we had four packers in Ohio, in Columbus, which was only like uh, half an hour from us. And we were supplying probably half of the livestock they were killing for two of them every day. And then all of a sudden, with workman's comp and employment problems they were having, they called and says, we're done. We're moving out of Ohio. You know, and David, if you want to clean out what you got, we'll kill everything you got. Wow. And I said, well, where are we going to go? And so I, I tried to call a packer they give me in Pennsylvania. Well, we had to have a, 
a semi-loaded hogs or we had the semi-loaded cattle. They all had to be identical. They all had, and we didn't have that. We didn't have enough facility for that. So we just give it up then and went to grain farming. And now we're looking back to move back into some livestock to do more farm to table things. I figure you need more on your plate, you know, yeah, more right. more to keep you busy. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, you don't want to get bored out here. Dave. Yeah, yeah. But today we're trying to close a deal on a packing house. So. Oh, fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, sometime during this day, I got to go sign a note for a packing house. So. Awesome. So, so uh, your own, like just a small packing house around here yeah, to do right. the direct to consumer stuff. Direct to consumer, now correct. let's dig into that. And we're fast forwarding a bunch here because we got you just a short time and there's a lot of material about you online that people can go and, and check out and listen to. You've been pretty open about, about yes. your story. So, right. but now you're, you're already in direct to consumer yes. talking about like the milling and the grains and the the open pollinated, the non-GMO, all these differentiated things. How has that progressed and why has that been a, the opportunity for you guys? Well, I get, you know, with grandson coming back uh, a year and a half ago, our seed business has got big enough. So the second grandsons came back. Uh, we were farming about 1,200 acres. Uh, last fall, we was at 1,000. We pulled out of a farm in November 22nd. Landlord come out and says, you're not going to farm it next year. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. And he said, yeah, I sold it for houses. And uh, I can show you that farm today. And it's got 25 homes on it already. Wow. Wow. And there's supposed to be 300 more there before fall, you know. So that's what we're facing with. So I decided and talked to the kids. I says, we've got to do more things, what I would call farm to table. And that's, that's our main message now is we're milling open pollinated corns. We have lemon yellow, we have uh, blue carage, and we have also a red corn. We're growing artisan wheats, which is uh, really interesting, you know, because uh, you don't treat them like you treat wheat commercially today because we learned that lesson a year and a half ago. With, what do you mean? With Well, we, we looked at, we started with icorn wheat. So we thought, you know, we'll treat it like we do it. Our other wheat, so we put 100 pounds of nitrogen on it, sprayed it with insecticides and herbicides and all that stuff. And guess what? It turned over and laid down and died. And in the bluegrass field where we cleaned out the drill, we had about two acres we just put in the bluegrass sod. It come up and looked real well, and we harvested another 50 bushel off of it. So I guess we're, not learned, we're learning not to fertilize some of our artisan things that we're trying. So you're you're taking all these products and mostly it's going into flour or flour, what kind of products? Meal. Mostly flour and cornmeal. We have a we have a baker in uh, Pittsburgh that's using 1,200 pound a meal a week. Wow. Uh, we have a baker in uh, Columbus that's taking 200 pound of flour a week. And the neat thing about our field day tomorrow is that when we serve lunch, everything will be from our farm or neighboring farms. The French baker's making uh, all kind of French pastries for in the morning to eat. There like, we go. Like donuts and those kind of stuff. At lunchtime, we're going to have chili grown from uh, grass-fed beef, grass-fed pork, non-GMO pork, and non-GMO beef. Then uh, after lunch, we're going to have uh, cookies and cupcakes. Uh, we're having cornmeal from our farm. Sure. We'll go along with the chili. And I'm excited about it. Yeah, that I mean? sounds great. It's uh, <laughs> It's a great thing, and we're trying to promote local growers that's doing the same thing we are. Well, the big focus here is that as farmers, we got to focus on profit, not just on yield all the time. Correct. And that's what this is, yeah. is that the farmer gets hardly any money out of the food dollar, and you guys have opened up the way to be able to really do that. How, how have you seen that change, and what do you see the, as the opportunity there for the future for other farmers? Well, I think, I think the real future is going to be as we look at regenerative agriculture and learning how to 
talk to people that wants to work with us to buy regenerative grains. And uh, not saying it's going to be much different than organic. I don't know yet. I don't think there'll be a whole lot of rules and regulations. But, you know, you have to have some guidelines to make sure that everybody's doing the same thing to make it regenerative. You know, and I think there'll be a premium paid because what we see with the regenerative agriculture is that the proteins in our grains that we're growing is three to five percent better than the commercial grains that's growing. You know, and that's what we're building our things on. It's, uh, you know, the, the baker in Philadelphia was using cornmeal five months ago from somebody. Uh, we went to him and showed him what we could do. Uh, it changed the texture of his breads. He was able to put our logo and our information on the back. And his bread sales went up by 22%. Oh, wow. So he's excited. Yeah, that's awesome. So, um, and that's all this, the connecting to the consumer, the data is going to be a big part. But like you're saying, it's kind of around this regenerative ag. What's your, you've seen this from the very beginning before it was regenerative ag. But today, what's your definition of regenerative ag? Well, I think regenerative ag to me means that we are doing the best we can to eliminate tillage. We're diversifying the root systems. We're diversifying our crops. And we're learning to uh, stay away from fungicides and insecticides as we get down the regenerative road. Now, you can't eliminate them the first year or two, but after that, I think we can pretty well take away all those kind of things because our beneficial insects come up by numerous numbers that I can't even visualize how many we have, you know. So, so yeah, Dave, on your farm now, you've got all these insects and all the critters in your soil and stuff. I mean, we go walking out there. We might get eaten alive. Well, what don't kind fall of, down. Let's don't fall down. Like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> might not come back. What have you seen there? I know you're going to give a demo here tomorrow on your yeah. soils, but how have you seen that soil change? Because I think a lot of farmers have been told that it takes 10 years to improve their soil health. And they really don't, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're going to see cores that was pulled nine years ago versus what we're doing today which, you know, I'm really excited about because when we pulled them yesterday, I could see the change. Yeah. You know, so I was I was kind of jubilous. I thought, man, if I've worked all these years and not seen any change, what am I doing this for? But sure. yeah, I'm seeing it now. But, you know, as we do this, as we put, you know, maybe we put rye after corn to go to beans hmm. and we eliminate 50% of the erosion. Just think we can eliminate probably 25% of the nutrients you're going to buy that next year. For sure. And we keep that soil where it belongs. So we're starting to build the soil. We're starting to see more dark-colored soils on the surface. Mm -hmm. And if you take a shovel and dig down, you'll find that dark soil or that dark enzyme moving down through the profile, through the earthworm holes and through the, the roots that's decaying. And then we see insect populations come back because we're utilizing cover crops that tend to flower sometimes. You know, we're, they have been here and they found as many as 30, 3,300 different beneficial insects on our farm. Wow. It's a great thing. And, you know, we're just having a good time. And it, to me, it's fun to find something that it works. And it's a challenge because we're no longer sitting on a tractor, burning diesel fuel, wasting time doing those kinds of things. And it's, I shouldn't call it waste time. I mean, you're doing a good practice, but we take our time that we would have been doing that, walking in the field, looking at our roots, looking at what insects we can find and building a bridge between other producers throughout the United States. I mean, you have to have this change of people to talk to because not everybody's doing what we're doing. No. And you've been obviously at the very much on the forefront of teaching 
And what's the first thing that you teach somebody? When you go to a farm that has never done this before, what's the first thing that you have to teach them and get through their head in order for them to be successful going this route? Well, I think the first thing I have to do is we talk about fuel consumption and tillage. We talk about how easy it would be to put a green, different plant in that field, you know, and what they can learn by it. And, you know, when you start showing him economic numbers of how he can save two or three gallons of fuel per acre, and, you know, that's 10 bucks an, an acre now savings. We talk about increasing his yield by 4 to 5% just because he stretched his rotation, sure. which is nothing. I mean, all universities will tell us if we go stretching our rotations, we increase the yield of stuff. But, you know, we're still stuck in this damn corn and bean thing, yeah. you know. So if we could stretch it, we see where we can do lots of beneficial things. Totally. For us, I mean, as you've seen, we're we're really big into the data and the soil testing and stuff and being able to decrease fertilizer, decrease our pesticides, decrease those inputs. But it's a progression. Like you said, how do you tell people to be be patient? Well, I think that's the biggest thing. I think, you know, it's, it's hard to be patient and understand uh, it's a slow curve. But it's a fast curve if you look and see how fast the water gets into your soils versus what it used to run off. You know, most of the conventional soils will only infiltrate about a half inch an hour. You can walk on our soils today out here and we're going to go to the field and show show these nice young people here that we can't even make a mud ball today. And it just quit raining and and it was sleeting here a little bit ago. Yeah, the water infiltration, all that stuff. So there's a big push here now from these big companies and from government and stuff that's, they're catching on. They must be listening to you or something. And, uh, but they're wanting to push carbon or push sustainability or push these outcomes. What do you tell those groups? What do you tell those different companies? Well, I, you know, I really like to see, you know, I'm a real simple individual. I'm a simple farmer. So if I want to sell carbon credits, here's what I want to sell. I want you to come to the farm. Take my six-inch infiltration ring, drive it in the ground, dump eight ounces of water on it. If it's gone in 30 seconds, pay me. You know? I don't give a damn how much carbon's out there. Sounds like a good bet. And if you have infiltration, you're saving carbon. I mean, they try to make this thing so bad. We cannot qualify. I am so upset. After 50 years of cover crop, we can't sell carbon credits. The, the biggest thing, I mean, and as you know, my farm, we can't either. Right. And uh, and because of, yeah, they're paying people for new practice right. changes right. And, and we got to be able to change that. But the biggest thing to in order to do that, we need to better understand what is our actual carbon footprint. You know, I'm not worried about getting paid for it. You're probably not worried nah. about getting paid for carbon. You're getting making money on other stuff. The biggest thing is there's so many of these companies that have these big goals. Right. And farms like ours, they can't work with us to meet their big goals because of some of the rules. But it's the same thing on so many companies that want to work with farmers and maybe they can't. How do we open up more connection between farms and consumers? And well, I think we're really getting close to doing that presently. I mean, we've got a lot of young men and uh, older men like myself even doing regenerative farming. So pretty soon we're going to have enough acres and we're starting – you know, with the internet network and, you know, the communication network today, you know, I'm still a, a, a pencil pusher on the phone or my finger. You know, I, I don't email. I don't do all that stuff because, you know, I get three letters instead of one. But, you know, the young guys today that can use the internet and do those things. And, you know, we may find an Indiana farmer has got 5,000 acres of regenerative stuff. But we may find one in Iowa. So why can't we put them together? and go to the manufacturer and say, here, we can pull this product you want that has better quality protein, better amino acids, and it'll make your product a lot better. I think that's the ultimate is the nutrient density piece. That's where we got to get to with this. 
Um, it seems like we're on a pretty good progression of farms that are starting to catch on. It Correct. definitely seems like it's accelerating. I like your thought, but how do we get this to accelerate further? What do you think is needed over the next 10, 15 years to push this even further? Well, I really think it's the educational part of it. I don't think it's funding. I don't think, you know, we don't need to pay farmers to do this. We just need to educate them to show them that there's a better way. What they're doing is not wrong, but there's a better way. You know, and maybe large industry won't like us when we say, say we can get by with 30 or 40 percent less fertilizer or 30 percent less herbicides. But just think what that would mean in today's market with anhydrous at nineteen hundred dollars a ton. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just inevitable that they're going to have to go that way. And if those companies want to be part of the future, they're going to learn to pivot. And right. they're going to pivot. They're going to figure it out. They're going to figure it out. They'll be fine. And, you know, the big companies like Deer and Agco, they're, they're really starting to want to talk to farmers that's doing regenerative so they can help their producers. Oh, yeah. You know, John Deere's talked to me several times, and we're trying to set up some meetings in Illinois that you know, the dealerships are wanting their farmers to know, to understand regenerative ag. Yeah. And I'm excited. I'm really excited. We'll be right back after this short break. At the beginning, okay, so you guys were, were working into this. You were getting some cover crops and no-till super early. Um, you know, how were you learning about that? How were you experimenting? And what was that progression like, I suppose, on were you able to accelerate quickly? Did you have some major hurdles? How did that work? Uh, we accelerated awful slow. It was like the poor toad was trying to run with a rabbit, you know. Uh, everything we did... Something bit us in the caboose, you know, and, uh, you know, one year army worms come, one year something else came, one year it didn't rain, one year it rained too much. The equipment was hard to come by when we first started, you know, and, you know, with, with lining up, and I shouldn't say we lined up, but we're working with chemical companies, you know, and I'm, and I'm not opposed to chemical companies a bit. We just have to learn how to use these chemicals more wisely today than we're doing. But, you know, when Monsanto and, and uh, Chevron Chemical come online, you know, I mean, it was not, uh, just imagine when I first started my first field of corn in 69, we put 10 pound atrazine on and a quart of 2,4-D. Wow. Those were the only two herbicides we had then. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it killed everything and the corn grew, you know. Definitely. So 10 pound yeah. atrazine for context for one now, usually it's about a half a pound, pound, maybe a pound at the yeah, most. Right, right. 10 pounds, that's a little hot. You were frying, you were frying. They come out everything. with toxaphene, you know, and we bought toxaphene in 55 gallon drums, you know, and you've seen these advertisements where you see some of this stuff leaking out. Well, you know, after about two months in a, in a steel drum, this stuff would start leaking, you know, but it killed the insects, you know, and, you know, when you killed them, you figure you done it right. And then all of a sudden something went wrong, you know. You killed everything. Killed so everything. it was good, sterile. Right. And then, you know, Monsanto come up with Roundup, which made us all lazy back in the 80s, you know. And that was a great fun thing because uh, I remember I was working with Bruno Alessi, which was the agronomist for Monsanto in uh, St. Louis. And, and he took me out there and they showed us these Roundup beans and we started growing some for him as a test, you know. And, and about six or seven years later, we found out they had them in group sevens and eight beans, you know. And, of course, they grow those in Arkansas and Mississippi, not in Ohio, and uh, run on to a heart seed company in uh, Mississippi. And they had a whole bunch left over one year. So I bought them up here. And, you know, my, my neighbors wouldn't do cover crops, but they would plant soybeans. You know, so I got them to plant a whole bunch of these group seven beans as a cover. 
and group seven bean has a leaf on it probably five inches across, you know, and big old plant, rugged. And of course, at that time, they would give you back your, your uh, cost of the Roundup uh, because of the labeled the thing. And so every, for four years, we kept turning in claims because it never made seeds, see? <laughs> Oh, wow. So you're, okay, so. So we're, so we're getting group seven beans out of Mississippi, planting them as cover crops. Planting them in the spring, but you're doing it in the spring, not well, over I'm the winter. doing it in the summer, you know. In the summer, right. planting them, oh, planting them after wheat after or something. Wheat or something. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah. You know, planting yeah, beans yeah. in the summer as your cover. About the fourth year, Bruno comes up to me and he says, David, he says, you've got these four claims from your, from our representative. <laughs> and he says, they never made seed. And I said, no. And he says, you got any planted? I said, yeah. So I, you know, <laughs> About, kinda, they're about seven foot tall. tall. Yeah. <laughs> the leaves, leaves are bigger as bigger your head. Trouble already. Yeah, you know. And uh, Bruno says, "Well, these are these are late maturing beans, aren't they, David?" I said, "Yeah." And he says, "What are you doing with them?" So I dug them. I says, "Look at these nodules. You know, we're, we're building nitrogen here." <laughs> He said, that's what <laughs> it was just your your nitrogen builder. Yeah. No intent to actually make the seed off no, it, but no. because Roundup was all new and stuff, you're like, well, what the heck? This Roundup is terrible. Right. And we was getting rid of their surplus. You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. So about uh, two months later, the guy from Heart Seed called. And he said, David, he says, I sold my business. I said, oh, you did? He said, yeah. He says, Monsanto bought us. Oh, no. <laughs> you're like, the gig is up. <laughs> so that was over with. So that's when we started getting looking at other things. But, you know, we just had those kind of things. So when we worked with one species, we'd always have trouble someplace in the field that it wouldn't grow or insects would eat it, you know? And then in, in late 60, 80, or 97, 98, started working with Steve Groth with his tillage radish, bought a white planter, would plant 15 inch stuff. So we alternated rows, peas and radishes. What I thought was the greatest thing that ever happened to us because then we got two species and guess what? They complemented each other. We got more nitrogen from them. We got deeper roots from the reddish, you know, and Steve was all excited, you know, and that was probably my biggest mistake. That's, that made me become a speaker, which I'm not yet very good at it. But uh, I had this reddish that was four inches across, 42 inches long and took it to the soil and water office and they took a picture of me and I don't know where it went, but all of a sudden I have to talk about it. You yeah, know? yeah, 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 <laughs> this big old radish. But it was, the, that was the, so in the 90s was the start of kind of figuring out, hey, maybe there's a little something to the right. diversity. You were doing some of it before, right, but not but really in the cover crop. Not in the cover crop, right. Right. Because we, you know, you don't plant corn and beans and harvest them both together, you know, so, and, you, and a pig don't have a calf, you know, so I never figured out you could grow more one thing at a time. Yeah. You know, now we're at 10 and 12 different things. Yeah, now a bunch of stuff. So how have you experimented with that? You just always try, try a bunch of stuff or how do you tell farmers to try new things? Well, we, we, I, you know, I try to get guys to think about, try to get them started with just the rye in the corn to get them used to it. A year or two of that. Rye and cereal rye into corn stalks ahead of soybeans. Ahead of soybeans. Then a year, you know, maybe another year of that. And then the third year, we'll talk about something for in their corn, you know, or in their soybeans. And we'll try that a year or two. And then I'll try to convince them they need a small grain because they don't need to be buying rye from me when they could grow it and replant it. So that gives them a chance to have a cereal in part of their acres, you know. And then we can talk about this big blended species that gets eight, 10 foot tall and has 10 foot roots. And when we do that, we can increase the biomass, which means we increase the organic matter faster. We bring beneficial insects in and they see a big turnaround. So it's a time frame of probably four to five to six years to get guys convinced. And you have to actually hold their hands. You have to be a mentor to these guys. 
And that's been the problem with so many government programs is we're going to give you 50 bucks an acre and you put rye on and we ain't going to tell you how to do it. And, you know, all of a sudden it's wet in the spring and it's eight foot tall. And these guys are calling David, how do we do this? Well, you know, you just do it. Yeah. And if it don't work, you do it again. No turning back now. You know, and guy said, well, you know, everybody says, well, this don't work. And I says, well, if it don't work, don't you ever replant your corn? You know? Yeah. And then we try to yeah, teach that him. that don't work all the time. That's right. And then I try to teach him they're planting a warm season grass, which nobody understands that a corn plant is grass. Yeah, yeah. You know, once I get that through their head, then they're thinking they can plant a little later and be more successful. So we get the soil warmer so the insects don't work on it as hard. And we have lots of good successes. But we've probably had 10,000 failures and six successes. Who's you know, counting? who's counting? Yeah, right. Who's counting? But the failures is where you learn. And the problem is every year is different. You know, it's like this year, we was just out in the field. We saw nothing growing yet. And here it is, the 8th of April. Last year, we had cover crops two foot tall, April 8th. You know, so you have to learn to manage what's going on. And I know this year we'll probably have to use some herbicides and some more nutrients. Some years we use none, you know, and you just have to be able to do that. And you have to have a, a bunch of guys you can talk to to find out what's happening in their areas to make this all work. And you're doing that because you're going out there with a the shovel and being observant. And you've seen it enough. Yes. That you know what the plants are kind of telling you and stuff. So I like the... You know, that I, I think knowledge and teaching and hand holding is the missing thing. You guys have done some of that. The first time I met you was a couple of years ago when we hosted you guys at the Soil Health Academy. Yes. And I was like, you know, 14 then. Now yeah. I'm like 16, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. So, but we hosted you at the Soil Health Academy. Yes. Tell that story and kind of what, you know, how has that kind of come about? Because that's been a big piece of educating people right. and making folks aware. Well, you know, I think. You know, I, I, I am a believer of education. You know, I really think that we need to be educated to, know, to make a sound decision on anything you do. So my, my point was that we need to figure out some way nationwide to educate producers on a change of agriculture. So, you know, it was Ray Archuleta and myself and Gabe Brown. Uh, we sat and talked for two years and said, you know, why don't we start something where we can actually go out and talk to people, uh, give them little ideas of what's going on, show them some good pictures, and actually be mentors to those people and let them go talk to other people. So that was how that started. And uh, it was about three months into it, and it became a monster that started eating all of us because we were so busy, nobody had time to be at home, you know. Actually farming and getting the work done. That was supposed yes, to be getting done. Right. Well, so my story of it was the when we hosted that academy is at one of my customers' farms and uh and it was the week of my wedding. Yes. And I was supposed to be helping and getting ready for a wedding. And there I was hanging out with Dave and these guys talking about soils. So that's my soil health academy story. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of good that stories. That would have been uh February 2018. Yeah, right. 2018. Pretty early. Yes. Yeah. Sir. So um, but okay. So that's continued to, to really progress and teach and stuff. But now you've got like the seed company thing. How else has some of this diversified? Was that with Steve too? And like the, the radishes and all that? Or Well, I think uh, the seed business really got started because I was out talking to people 
and I'd show them how to use cover crops and rye and winter peas and hairy vetch. And the first thing you know, a phone call, well, I can't find it, Dave. Where do I find it? You know, so I began to put little deals together. But to diversify, and then, but you're growing a bunch of these. What percentage of the seeds are you growing yourself? Uh, we're probably at about uh, 25% of the seeds sold. Yeah. We grow here just because we don't have enough acres. Now we're learning to contract with other growers. So I think this year will be about 50% of the rye we sell will be contracted, grown close to us, you know. Yeah, so where we're doing this this interview is is in your seed shed where you guys got, so you guys are bringing in seed in here, so trucking it in from your contract growers. You got the cleaning system right here yes. to clean out the seed. You got to get germ tested and all Correct. that, I'm sure. Right. Then you guys are bagging it yourself, and you're doing large totes and you're doing 50-pound bags, or how's yeah, all that we working? Yeah, do, we do 50-pound bags and large totes and true bulk. Yeah. All three. Yeah. So bulk. So you're selling them back out in semis too. Yes. Correct. One of those things that you're selling is some of this open pollinated corn, yes. which I'm looking at trying me a little bit. So I got to prick your brain some more on it. But, okay. but that angle has kind of been somewhat of a new thing that, you know, we keep hearing more about. Well, that's a new niche for us. Uh, uh, it was just an idea that Chris, grandson, Chris and I and Jay come up with just to see if we could grow it and see if it was worth growing. You know, so we had about seven acres of red corn. We had uh, nine acres of blue corn and 23 acres of yellow corn. And, you know, it's like the little story about you build a ball diamond in the middle of a cornfield, they'll come. Yeah. Well, guess what? You have uh, you have 15,000 bushel of seed corn or seeds. Uh, you're going to find a market for it. <laughs> So you actually <laughs> Those are going to be sitting on a whole pile of it and <laughs> yeah, right. not know what to do. Uh, and, and that's a neat thing with the internet. You know, Jay's good in that. So he was able to talk to, to brewers. We sell a lot of, of the open pollinated corn to brewers. Uh, about probably, I'm hoping 50% of it will be milled because we can make more money on the milled stuff than we can through a brewer. You know, but we're just growing slow, slow and small and uh, developing that market to make it work. Yeah, that's why I'm going to try it really small and stuff here too, maybe an acre or two if I do anything, you know, because the key thing for diversifying there, you know, nobody's really done it around me at all. I've seen Lawrence, yes. you know, our buddy Lawrence Steinleggy right. and learning from him, but um, but I've got, you got to have a market for it. And I think that's key for diversifying for any of this stuff. How has that, you know, progressed? Or what do you tell people that are like, well, Dave, I don't have a market. What do you, what do you tell them? Well, I think, you know, I think you just need to look for a market. I mean, we've been taught so long that uh, ADM and Cargill and Bungie is the only place to go, you know. And it's really simple. You just fill up a truck. And if it's yellow and got a red tip, they'll pay you for corn. And if it's light yellow, they'll pay you in round. It's a soybean, you know. Uh, and I got, of course, you know, David has hoof and mouth disease all the time. So one time I was at a big meeting and I, I held up a piece of pea gravel that was yellow that I painted and put a red dot on it. And I said, if we have a semi-load of this, ADM will buy it for corn. You know, well, that didn't hit uh, home very well. Yeah. <laughs> so I learned not to that. say that anymore. Yeah. But, you know, it's just that's just the idea. They don't really care what quality is. What, you know, it's just as long as it meets their specs. You get paid for the corn. Bulk, yeah. Are you are you guys selling anything commercially at this point, or it's uh, all about about 10% of our corn and beans go commercial right now. Okay. And 90% of it's getting sold retail yeah. or semi-retail wholesale to either livestock producers because of the protein value. We're pushing nine and ten percent proteins in our grains that we're growing. And you know, we've got uh, one variety that's running eleven and a half percent protein. And this guy's just feeding ground corn to his hogs as a finishing ration. 
and it's working great. Sure. What's your goal? As you look forward here through the stuff, I mean, you've probably got one another 40, 50 years to, to figure it out, you know, yeah, but, right, right. but what's your goal? How do you, how do you think about the, the next steps here? Well, I really think my next step is like we're saying, we're trying to do regenity. And my next step is to teach the public that as we build soils back to healthy soil types that was here when we first went across the United States, you know, uh, that uh, we will have healthier livestock in the end, we'll have healthier human beings because they're eating healthier meats with more proteins, more antibiotics in it. And I think that's the key. We need to really start. And I think the COVID thing has really brought it on because I see a lot of housewives that's coming directly to us buying cornmeal and flour, and they're thrilled to death that they know where it comes from. You know, uh, you have to put up with a lot of public, and if you don't, if you don't like that, don't do it. You know, but uh, if you like to share your story, and that's what we like to do and uh, explain to them what's happening, it makes it a lot of fun. Yeah. I think you already have a pretty big legacy in this, but how do you think about legacy, your personal legacy? And what you're, what, what people are going to say when we go to your, the you know, Dave Brandt Museum? I'm just a farmer that I'm trying to share our information with. And if I build a legacy, I'm tickled. But I'm, I'm not out here every day saying I'm the best. I'm probably the worst that there is. You know, but, uh, you know, I'm just trying to educate other producers. And it's surprising to me when I work with uh, producers like Lauren and, and Rick and, you know, all the guys that you, we know and everybody knows they have been here, but they've taken it farther than I ever thought it could go. And that's what I'm proud about because they've taken it, adopted it to where their location is and made it even better. So can you imagine in years from now that we will we will be feeding the world on protein on grain instead of 600 bushel corn? Yeah. Oh yeah. What so I mean those guys are are re, are relatively local a couple hours away. You're reaching people all over the world. Tell us a story about somebody that called you from who knows where in the world. Uh, we we was fortunate enough a year ago that a young man from the Ukraine called me. And he said I'm an agronomist. He says I got 10 farmers on the line. I just want to talk to you about cover crop and no-till. He says, I know you won't come over here to see us. And I says, no, I don't have wings, so I can't get there, you know, but I'll tell you what I know, you know, and we've talked several times and, you know, uh, we was lucky enough that uh, we've had uh, people from China here. We've had uh, people from Sweden, uh, the Netherlands, Australia. The best thing was the French ambassador of agriculture was on this farm. Uh, in 16 or 17, we impressed him so much that when he went back home, they had the COP20 meeting there for climate change, the first meeting of NATO. And he invited me to come and speak to 40 countries in NATO about climate change and how cover crops could affect that. And that probably was been my highlight of what I've done. I was probably scared as most I've ever been because uh, when I went to the palace and they opened the these doors are like 40 foot tall, four inches thick, a solid mahogany, you know, and it's a big old room with pillars, granite pillars everywhere, and one U.S. flag on the front row of the tables, you know. Uh, so that was uh, a humbling experience for David. Yeah, yeah, that's know. pretty cool. And, uh, that was cool. What else do you think? That's what I was going to kind of go to next. I mean, you've gotten awards and all kinds of stuff, but what do you think is, has been the most, you know, the thing you're most proud of out of all this? Well, I guess the, thing, the things I'm really most proud of is that uh, 
you know, going to France was probably the highlight of things. But to be honored from EPA, National EPA, for non-point source pollution because of, we went from 10 ton of soil loss down to 100 pounds. You know, so they could save a lot. Of, we saved a lot of nutrients from going into the local stream. At that time, we had a livestock, so we had some nice livestock facilities to go along with it, you know. And uh, that was a real pleasure. And I think the real highlight to, to our operation here is tomorrow we'll have the fifth national chief of NRCS on this farm. So I've been able to have five chiefs here. And they did kick off the soil health movement nationwide from this location, which was great uh, great for me. I mean, I had a lot of fun that day. Anything else we missed? It's just been a learning experience, and I think that's what we have to relay to any new producer or any producer that's doing it. Every year they learn something new, and I think that's what's making it fun for me in agriculture and should be fun for everyone. 100%. Well, that that's where it's, that's where I'm at with it, you know, on our farm and working with dad and stuff on it that we're having fun. We're doing this because, you know, we're having fun. We're making money, too. This is a better route, makes more money, but it's better for everything all around. And, and I think we're seeing, you know, more and more farmers that come this way. But you got to have the right mentors. You got to have the right help. I mean, guys like you, I mean, you were able to find some, which is amazing, like even so early on that there was still help out there. It right. still took those other mentors even right. for you. right. You know, so that's that's what's really crucial in all this and always a resounding thing. You know, I, I just despise when I go out in in Oklahoma or Kansas or Nebraska and we go through these towns and they're all dried up because one farmer's farming 10,000 or 100,000 acres. And so he bypasses everything that those little towns meant because he's buying such volume. So the town dries up. And maybe that's the way it has to be. I don't know. But I think we can go back to smaller farms, more people involved, better quality food, tell our stories, clean up the water. Uh, to me, I think all urban person ought to be interested in regenerative ag. Because if we can clean up the water, just think how much less money a sewage treatment plant has to do. You know, the quality of the water is going to be better. You know, I just think there's a lot of things that we can do. And regenerative ag will be the big step to clean up the communities. Yeah, the taxpayer spends a lot of money on mitigating flooding, right. on insurance, on uh, cleaning up water, on now cleaning up air, on medicine. Right. There's a lot of money spent in those places, and regenerative ag can help to address all of them. Absolutely right. And it's a great story. Regenerative ag is a great story. Yours is a great story, Dave. Appreciate appreciate the time. Yep. Thank you. Awesome. Well, everyone, that's for Fieldwork today. Thanks for hanging out with us. Our show is produced by Todd Melby with lots of great help from Anna Canny. Kristen Schmidt runs our social media and Lauren Humpert is our project coordinator. Thanks to all the technical directors at American Public Media who help us record and mix our show. Be sure to check us out on social media or at Fieldwork Talk on all the usual channels. And we'd love it if you wrote us a review to help other people find us. Don't forget that we love hearing from you. So give us a call. Leave us your comments, your questions at 651-228-4810, 651-228-4810. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.